Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is Phoebe Kotlikoff, and this week I'm sitting down with retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Harold Davis, DVM, PhD. Dr. Davis is a graduate of Tuskegee University's College of Veterinary Medicine and received his doctorate in pathology from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He was a veterinary pathologist in the United States Air Force for 20 years before a successful career in the private sector. He has been a member and president of the American College of Veterinary Pathologists and has served on several national advisory boards, including the Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine's advisory board, the FDA Science Advisory Board, the National Center for Toxicology Research Advisory Board, and as a member of the National Academy of Science National Research Council Committee to assess the current and future workforce needs in veterinary medicine. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure is mine. It's a pleasure meeting you. Same to you. So, sir, the first question every time on this podcast is, what are you reading? Well, uh, I'm an avid reader. Uh, and I, now with the COVID-19, I have a lot of time to read. And uh, in the last few years, my, my reading tastes have shifted toward a lot of books that have to do with spirituality. Mm. I am a um, school teacher, a deacon. I lead a, a men's group at our church. And we are a reading men's group. So I'm in the process now of reading a book by Dr. Tony Evans called No More Excuses. And I'm getting ready to start a a facilitation of that book for about maybe 40 men at our church as we walk through the book. Uh, We meet twice a month uh, on Monday nights. And now we're doing it uh, by telephone uh, just because of the virus situation. But we normally meet at the church. And and it's a book that has to do with men uh, making no more excuses about not being who God calls them to be. And so sort of chapter by chapter, he goes through certain things, sort of taking away the excuses we might have had. Uh, The excuses because of uh, how I got treated in the past and and what I don't have and uh, nobody told me. And... uh, uh, there's one chapter on what he calls like the limp, because in life, you know, everybody gets smacked around and uh, you wind up limping through life because of a, an injury. And a lot of times the limp has to do with, it's a perceived limp. And he uses a great analogy of an athlete who doesn't make a play, a crucial play in a game, whether it's a baseball player or a football player, and uh, he dives at the ball but he doesn't get the ball. And when he gets up, he limps. And he uses the limp as an excuse for why he didn't make the play. And he says a lot of us go through life with a limp. Uh, what we're doing is making an excuse for why we don't get up in the game and do better the next time, et cetera. So, so that's what I'm reading now. Um, I just finished reading a book called... Um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man. And it has to do with uh, what it requires that if we're going to serve God the way God would have us serve Him, 
It requires discipline. It requires sweat. And anything we're going to do to get in shape or to, get, to do well in life, you have to put something into it. And so he talks about the disciplines of a godly man. And so we met for a few months. Uh, uh, on second and fourth Monday, we met to sort of walk through that, that book. Um, so I'm often, I'm often reading several books at the same time. I just picked up a book by John Carter calling, called Leading Change. Uh, it just, just has, has to do with being a leader and, and making, as we prepare for change, and I'm hoping that book's going to help us. I'm on the board of directors at this church. Um, and the church probably has eight or 9,000 members. So it's a good size church. And um, part of what are we going to look like when we come out of this? Uh, one, one of the things I, I, I did a talk at the church, Dr. King, the last book that Dr. Martin Luther King wrote was a book called, um, Where Do We Go From Here? Community or Chaos? And I mentioned to the fellows that he had, Dr. King had gone to Jamaica uh, in 1967 uh, to get away from what was going on. And he had sort of, sort of uh, taken an aside, turned away, if you will, uh, to sort of re reinvigorate himself in 1967. And he came up with this book about where do we go from here? And he focused on the uh, Selma march uh, had occurred and been successful in 1963. They'd been quite chaotic. Uh, in 1964, the Civil Rights Bill had gotten passed. In 1965, the Voting Rights Bill had gotten passed. Dr. King had been locked up in jail and had written the, um, had written the uh, le letters from the Birmingham jail. One of, to me, one of his best writings. People, a lot of people don't know about him. And so here he is in 1967, in January, February 67 in Jamaica. And he's asking the question, where do we go from here? Will we go off into community? Or will we have chaos? Now, little did Dr. King know that in 1968, he and Bobby Kennedy would both be assassinated. Mm -hmm. And then in 1968, we'd have the Democratic Convention that was turned into just chaos. I think it was in Chicago. Uh, and so there was just chaos in the streets. And there was the marching on the, the war in Vietnam uh, around that time. And so I don't know if we can get to community without chaos. And so I put some degree of chaos. And, and so I, I said to the men who were gathered there, it was a men's group, we probably had a few hundred men there, and I, I we were meeting outdoors. We were social distancing, everybody had on a mask. But the question was, where do we go from here? You know, we just had the, the killing of the young man in, in Atlanta. We had the killing of the young lady in Louisville, and we've had the killing um, mm -hmm. of, of uh, George Floyd. And so the question, and we've had all of the protesting, and we've had the looting downtown, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, this was some, somewhat like Dr. King to me, reminded me of that book, the title anyway, the thesis of where do we go from here? And mm -hmm. to get where we want to get, to me, is going to take chaos. And the reason I think Dr. King felt that way, uh, he, he sort of felt that the whites who were on his side that were supportive really had no idea of what it was going to take 
to get to equality for blacks. That mm-hmm. the march on Selma, as bad as it was, the the um, getting the civil rights bill passed, which was no small feat in the country at that time, and getting Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, to sign off on the uh, uh, the voting rights bill, was a tremendous accomplishment. But it really only touched the surface of what it was going to take to get uh, black people equality. And that's what they were looking for. That's what we were looking for. And so here we are today, and we are marching in the street and we're talking about the police and needing to have uh, a different kind of policing, which I'm, I'm, I very much support. I got friends who are cops. But we need the police to be a different kind of police. Uh, police, when they come into black neighborhoods, they come in uh, not to be, not to assist, but to correct, to correct in their own way, to to stamp down crime, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in the black community, we believe they come in in a whole different vein than how they go into white neighborhoods. And I've seen that in out here where I live. I mean, I live in a uh, on sort of a farm right, in, a, in a rural, semi-rural area. And uh, a lot of black cops at my church and sheriffs at my church, and they have a very different attitude. And so I know all cops don't have that attitude, mm-hmm. but the, the area where I grew up in, uh, there's a perception that the, when you call the police, don't call the police. Because mm-hmm. calling the police can get you killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and so, so I, I posed the question, where did we go from here? And I suggested to the brothers that they ought to read that book mm-hmm. uh, by Dr. King, the last book that he wrote. Um, not, not a famous book that he wrote, but the last book that he wrote. Um, and so I'm reading books like that. I, I read, I'm rereading Dune. Ah, oh, one of my favorites. I am a, I am a Frank Herbert uh, lover. And I've read, the, I've read the whole series and I've even read some, some of the books written by his son. And, and I've probably read the series, I don't know, I bet 10 times. So one of my favorite books uh, is by Jimmy Carter, who was in the Navy. And Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter wrote a book called Why Not You're the Best. And uh, I recommend that book to you. Jimmy Carter wrote a book as he was getting ready to run for president. And it's called Why Not the Best. And he tells the story of when he was had just, just graduated from the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. And he was a pretty good student in the Academy, I guess. And uh, he goes to meet with Admiral Rickover, who was in charge of the nuclear submarine business or something at that time. Because President Carter wanted to get into nuclear subs. So he goes for an interview. And he feels quite pompous that he has done well you know, in the academy, and he, so he thinks mm-hmm. he's got a lot in his favor. And Admiral Rickover sort of listened to him tell you know, about himself. And then the Admiral asked him, did you do your best? And he said it knocked him for a loop, basically, because he had to stress up that even though he had done well, he had not done his best. And so that book, that became a thing for him, and it became a thing for me in my career and uh, my, in education. Uh, that I once I learned of that book, that uh, okay, you did well, but did you do your best? 
-hmm. most of the time, or maybe all the time, I had to fess up that I could have done that. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that drove me in my career, that I could have, I could have done better. I praise God. Thanks, thanks be to God. Uh, you know, I graduated first in my class, but I could have done better. You know, I passed the uh, ACVP boards uh, on their first on my first trial, which I think the time I took it, maybe twenty three percent of the people who took it first time was passed the first time, and I was one of those. But you know what? I could have done better. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I I didn't study quite as hard as I could have. I, you, you know, I, I maybe been a little better focused. What, what, so I don't care how good you do. It's the point that I took away from that book. Uh, if you probably have nothing to brag about because you could have done better. That's right, and it's a good reason to be very humble. Always, I think. I can always have Rick over asking me, Captain. Uh, Colonel, you know, major, whatever, doctor, did you do your best? And and I would probably have to answer, well, you, I could have done better. Could have done better. So, so, so that's the kind of stuff that I'm reading. A few things stuck out to me from what you just described. First, how fabulous it is that you're finding a way to stay connected with your church community despite the pandemic. And, and that that involves reading. I think that's really wonderful. And also, you know, the books that you described really have a theme to me that is very similar to some military themes, you know, personal self-discipline, never, never settling for mediocrity when you could be excellent, not making any excuses for yourself. So I just think it's really interesting that you are reading these books now that have themes that I'm sure were a huge part of your life in the military as well. But I wanted to ask you, so when you were describing the passage of the Civil Rights Act, if I do my math correctly, I think that you were probably in high school right around that time. Is that right? Yeah, well, if I was uh, 1963, I was 13. And a kid growing up in Birmingham. And, and there for a while there, Dr. King's brother was my pastor. So the Dr. Reverend A.D. King uh, was, was the pastor of the church that I attended. I, I, I think maybe when I was 10 or 11 or so, he was the pastor of our church, 12-ish, something like that. And uh, so my church was very much involved in the civil rights era. Uh, maybe three, two, three blocks from where I live was the, our church's home, the church house, the parsonage, and uh, where he lived, Dr. King, brother lived, or A.D. King lived. And someone threw a bomb through the front window at a bay window in my neighborhood, and they threw a bomb through the window and blew out the front of the house. And this was about two blocks from where I lived. And so we all went down to see the house and to be there that evening was dark, uh, just getting dark into the night. And so the, the neighborhood gathered there, et cetera. And so that had an impact on me. And our church, I remember people meeting at our church to talk about strategizing about the, the, the movement, the Birmingham movement, as it was called at that time. I, I was a young kid, so I was not involved, but I remember people meeting at the church and I clearly remember when the young girls got bombed, the church got bombed in Birmingham. 
um, I, I was getting ready to go to church myself uh, on the other side of town. Um, our church never got bombed, but when they, those kids got bombed, they got killed at the church. I was a young kid getting ready to go to church myself. Uh, so I grew up in Birmingham during that time. I were clearly, I, I, didn't, I wasn't down there when they sick the dogs on the kids. Uh, we had a public safety commission named Eugene Bull Connor. He went by the, the Bull and he was in charge of the police department, the fire department. And uh, Bull Connor, the, the movement people thought that uh, they were gonna march and maybe he would, may have been knocked down by hoses and dogs. So maybe he would not sick their dogs mm. on them if they put kids up front. And so they asked, asked for volunteers to go down. And I, I don't remember why I didn't go because my church was involved. I don't remember that day. But anyway, they went down and he, they knocked them down with the hoses and they sicked the dogs on them. And it was that picture along with the, on TV it was, and that picture, and the picture of what happened when they crossed the Selma Bridge the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and, and they were beaten down. John Lewis, Martin King, and others were beaten down. Uh, uh, well, mm -hmm. yeah, that picture of John Lewis, because Martin actually came down the next day. Uh, but when they were beaten like that, those two pictures went all over the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And people saw what was going on in Birmingham. Birmingham was so bad. When I was a kid, it was called Birmingham because so many ministers had their churches and, and homes mm -hmm. bombed. Uh, because of that. And so that's, the, that's how I grew up. And, and we grew up knowing that the 11 to 7 police, as they were called, you didn't want to be out on the street between 11 at night and 7 in the morning because if the cops found you out on the street, they would whip your head, you know, take you mm -hmm. to jail, beat you up, that kind of thing. And, and, and it probably happened less than we sort of thought, but it happened enough that we were aware and fearful of that. You would not as young boys during that time when I was, you know, mm -hmm. 10 to 13, sit up, be out on the curb at night. Well, first of all, your parents would want you in the house anyway, but you wouldn't, surely wouldn't be out on the street mm -hmm. on the curb, just sitting out talking at that time of night because the, the thoughts were the police might ride through, pick you up and just beat you up. So, so I grew up in that kind of environment and uh, went to Tuskegee. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to an HBCU, as they're called, Historical Black University, HBCU. I went to Tuskegee, and my mindset was to be a physician. I was in pre-med, and I was going to become an obstetrician, OBGYN. But I, I never envisioned so much of practice. I, I wanted to do research, but I thought I would get into OBGYN. I don't know why. So I went to Tuskegee, and, I, and there was a veterinary school there. And I met a young lady there. Uh, who was uh, two years behind me. So she came my third year and we fell in love and uh, I got drafted into, into the military. And I don't know how I got drafted because I, I uh, was, um, I usually filled out my student deferment papers. And so the draft was still going on there. And uh, I filled out my paperwork mm -hmm. and I got these papers saying I had been drafted, but I naively and stupidly didn't pay him a whole lot of attention because I was a playing football and I was and I had decent grades and because they made a mistake they had to fix this I, I didn't pay any attention and that was quite naive and stupid because I don't know forty some days fifty days later I got another letter saying I was violating section so and so because I did not report 
had not responded. And if I did not respond immediately, I'd be arrested or something to that effect. And so I called up the lady at my selective service back in Birmingham. And she told me basically, you know, you're in the military now. And I had a brother at that time missing in Vietnam. Oh my gosh. And so I was thinking, no way, I'm too tall. I'm not going, I'm much taller than he was. I'm not going to Vietnam. And, and it, it was like Vietnam had cleared out my neighborhood. So many of the kids I grew up with had gone off to Nam during the draft. Mm. So I wound up talking to a fraternity brother on campus who said to me, well, if you want to avoid the military right now, you could uh, go to Canada and be a draft dodger. But I was afraid to go to Canada because at the time, if you went to Canada, you couldn't come back. And I, I was afraid of not ever seeing my family again. And, and I didn't have money. To, I didn't know how I'd get to Canada anyway from Tuskegee. The second thing was to um, get an attorney and try to fight it. And I surely didn't see how I could fight it. I mean, I, I grew up sleeping four to a bed mm -hmm. in a three-room house with eight or nine of us in the house, three-room house, and one of those rooms was the kitchen. So I, I, getting a lawyer didn't seem like a reasonable thing to do. And the third thing was to go over to ROTC and see if they would t take you back into ROTC and uh, maybe they would write a letter for you and ask, them to, to ask the government to leave you alone. So I, I, at Tuskegee, every man had to take, every boy and man had to take ROTC their first year. And so when I went, I, I took uh, Air Force ROTC. I was just happy to be put in Air Force ROTC. We had Air Force and Army. So they put me in Air Force ROTC. Mm -hmm. And so I had done a year of Air Force ROTC, but I was not back in it. So this was my sophomore year. So I went back over and I told them I wanted to get into ROTC, but I had been drafted. And I think it was Major Jewel or somebody wrote a letter to somebody telling them that the country would be better served with me as an officer than an enlisted guy or something to that effect. And, and so they left me alone and I got in ROTC. And, uh, and in ROTC, I found it sort of easy to do. I wound up becoming, um, uh, I, I actually switched from an academic scholarship to an ROTC scholarship. And I became the Corps Commander for ROTC at Tuskegee. So I, I was a student in charge of Air Force ROTC. Mm -hmm. It was the craziest thing in the world, believe you me. Because mm -hmm. I it was somebody who clearly did not want to be in ROTC. But, you know, I, 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 it was something I did. And so fortunately, I had applied to the veterinary school, and I didn't want to become a vet. But I had applied to keep my fraternity brothers and fellow people that I knew there in the school off my back. And Tuskegee had accepted me. And uh, you could be going to research even as a veterinarian. Uh, I was blessed, and I, I did do well. I, did, I was first in my class. And, uh, uh, and I was very, very fortunate to go to Tuskegee because uh, Having gone to Tuskegee, the university itself, it was Tuskegee Institute when I went as a four-year student, undergraduate, called Tuskegee Institute. It changed the name some years later. But there was a book written uh, by one of the veterinary faculty, uh, by a guy named Eugene Adam, uh, wrote a book. Uh, and the book was called The Legacy. And I keep this book near me at all times. In fact, it's called The Legacy. And, and it's a history of the Tuskegee School of Veterinary Medicine from 1945 to 1995. Uh, and so it includes the years when I went there. 
uh, this guy who wrote the book was, was a pathologist, a veterinary pathologist, and he had gone on to become the associate dean at Tuskegee. I'm pretty sure he was the first black person to be, in, to be in, uh, uh, inducted or accepted into the American College of Veterinary Pathology. And so he was one of my heroes as a professor. And while in veterinary school, I fell in love with pathology and I fell in love with cardiovascular physiology. And so I had this dream of trying to figure out how I could combine uh, cardiovascular medicine or physiology with pathology. And so after graduation, I wanted to go back now to go back to school and do a doctorate. I wanted to go to Birmingham, to the medical school in Birmingham, who was a renowned cardiovascular center. And Birmingham was my hometown too, so I wanted to go back to go to school and go home. I went back to interview, and I interviewed with a bunch of professors there that I, they asked me about a C in organic chemistry I had gotten as an undergrad. As an undergrad. Now, I had already done four years of veterinary school. And so they asked me about the C that I got in undergrad school and that that, was, that might be a deal breaker. And um, so while they're, while they're interviewing, I went down to Tuskegee while I was in Birmingham there for the interview. And I met with um, that dean that I was talking about, the associate dean. And I met with the guy who was in charge of clinics, who was a fraternity brother of mine. And they both told me that UAB didn't want me there, that that program didn't want to accept me. Somebody had written a letter, this guy had written a letter down there to the school to ask them about my C in undergraduate work. Dr. Adams said he had sent a letter back saying, Dr. Davis basically graduated first in this class. And so if you have a question about Dr. Davis' ability, don't write, call, you know. And uh, but the, so the person who had, asked or inquired, was a very, very conservative white man. Uh, he was not, he was super conservative. And uh, he was the one who asked about my organic chemistry scene. Uh, and so, so I, I got there with a sense that he did not want me there. But you know what, he became, you know what the word I'm looking for, uh, 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 ushering me around. And at the college meetings, he made sure that I met people. Once, he, once I got there and he got to know me, et cetera. And, and I remember going to Tifton, Georgia. The diagnostic lab for Georgia is in, is in Tifton. Uh, now, you, you gotta know, I'm one of the few blacks there. I might've been the only black there. And so that Sunday, they would go every year, they would go to Dr. Lindsay's mother's house in Tifton, this Georgia town, this backwater town, to me anyway. Uh, and so I was going to go to this mother's, this mother's house for dinner. Now I'm a black man reared in the environments that I had been in. Surely I had never been in a white woman's house for dinner. And so I was feeling, now I, I've got a doctorate already, you know, veterinary doctorate, but you know, I, and I'm in this group, very sure of myself, very confident in who I was. But I was raised a certain way, and I had a certain history with whites. Even though I had white friends at the time, I'd never been in a white home. And so anyway, I got to go to this white woman's house, and I felt very uh, at disease. Uh, and she made me feel very, very comfortable, very comfortable. And so when he died, years later, when he died, uh, his kids, uh, asked me to, amongst others, to write a letter 
to be read at the fact, you know, for them. And I wrote a letter and I said that it was not lost on me that I was probably the first black person to ever set foot in your grandmother's house uh, as a, as a, to come into that house and be asked to sit at her table. And I said, it, it, one of the things that um, marked me was how she treated me as though I was just like everybody else. And uh, I said, that wasn't lost on me. And even though I had, when I went to AUAB, I felt Dr. Lindsay perhaps didn't want me there. He never made me feel like he didn't want me there. In fact, he was my, one of my biggest, he was one of my biggest advocates, one of my biggest champions. And then I went on to become president of the American College of Veterinary Pathology. Um, I, it never was lost on me that I was in a college that, of veterinarians who was predominantly white, that there might have been at the time I went into the college, maybe seven or eight blacks and maybe less than that in the college, not counting a couple of old guys who had sort of stopped coming to the meetings, you know, like Dr. Adams. But uh, so when I would go to the meetings, there wouldn't be a lot of blacks at the meeting. But uh, most of the people in the college, most of the big weeks in the college, accepted me and uh, allowed me to get on committees and put me to work, et cetera. So recently, the College of, of, of Veterinary Pathologists put out a letter just talking about uh, how they felt about uh, diversity and uh, treating everybody equally, et cetera, et cetera. And so I saw that letter. Probably most people in the college saw it, I guess. And I sent a letter back to council and to the president and to the secretary treasurer telling them that that letter moved me as the first and only black person to ever be president of that group, that I was quite moved by the fact that the college would put that letter out. And, and I said that every black person in the college uh, must have read that letter with pride to see that their college would, would write such a letter. And I just wanted to say to them how moved I was to be a member of such a college and to have been its president some years ago. So I'm a very proud member of the College of American College of Veterinary Pathologists. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Davis. That um, pieces of your history, you know, I think for my generation, sometimes it's difficult to really comprehend that, you know, you were the age of my younger brother, um, you know, when, when all of this history happened that to me as a young person feels like it was a really long time ago. And um, it wasn't that long ago. And uh, we obviously still have a tremendous amount of work to do. So um, thank you for talking about that. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about um, your time active duty in the Air Force? And, you know, so you've been, you now have been at an HBCU, Tuskegee, went to University of Alabama, Birmingham, and now what happens next? You're launched into the Air Force as a doctor. So I come in from an HBCU. Obviously, there are not many Black officers on the basis where I am. And so once again, I, I leave an environment of uh, where it's comfortable, you know, being black is not, is not, um, uh, not an exception, it's the rule. So in my class at Tuskegee, 
uh, at the time, uh, my veterinary class, the veterinary school probably was 25% white, 30% white. So a lot of class white classmates at my school, there are a lot of people from Africa in my class or from the Caribbean in my class. Uh, and so it was, a, it was quite a diverse group. So I go, go off to Edwards Air Force Base and on that whole base, I think there were five black officers. Three of us, as it turns out, were from Tuskegee. Two of, two of them were Tuskegee engineers. Uh, one was a pilot as well as an engineer. He wasn't flying anymore. But the, so three out of maybe the seven of us were, were Tuskegee guys. One was a black dentist from Howard. Uh, he was, he was uh, my age group, uh, maybe a year behind me came. And uh, so I'm on this base. And, uh, you, you know, I'm in, again in a world of whiteness. So some people received that well, some didn't. I, I had people bring their pets in. Uh, and they might have been shocked the first time that, that I was a black doctor. Uh, we were in the middle of nowhere at Edwards Air Force Base, so they didn't have a whole lot of, if they had a pet and the pet guy needed help or something, these shots were being treated, they had to bring them to me because well, 40, the nearest other vet was maybe 45 minutes away. I was always aware of the fact that I was a black officer, one of the few blacks on the base as officer. Now, there were quite a few blacks on the base who were enlisted. Um, a lot of enlisted blacks, but not many officer blacks. And so most of the enlisted blacks, when they saw a black officer, uh, they were quite proud of the fact that this, he was a black officer, you know, and a doctor at the hospital squadron, et cetera, et cetera. Being in the Air Force as a black person was like being in, 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 in the Marines as a black person or being in whatever, in the world as a black person. You're always aware when I was in the, in the Air Force, I knew that there were people who did not perhaps care for me as a black guy, but I also knew there were a lot of people who treated me well, and I must have been some angels on my shoulder, you know, in, in, in uniform, who looked out for me. And I had great friends in, in the military, I, you know, some who were lifelong friends. So last question, do you have any advice you know, looking back on your career, both as a retired Air Force officer and having had a great career as a veterinary pathologist, do you have any advice for young people today getting ready to commission or, you know, junior officers or, or junior enlisted who are just starting out in their careers? Uh, the, <clears throat> the first thing is to, I guess, is to enjoy the ride. Uh, you know, life is going to happen uh, so you can take it, you need to be serious, but you can take things too seriously. Um, that book that talks about don't sweat the small stuff and, and everything is small stuff. Well, in a way, that's actually true. You know, you, what, what happens tomorrow, uh, what you worry about tomorrow will happen. And somewhere in the Bible, it says sufficient are the troubles of today. That you don't have to sort of borrow trouble from tomorrow. And so, you know, life is going to happen. And so that would probably be one of the things I would recommend. The, the other thing is uh, find out who you are early. Um, everybody ought to have a center. And I can't help it, I'm a spiritual person now. Uh, and so I believe everybody ought to have a psalm, P-S-A-L-M, I love the book of Psalms. And everybody ought to have a, a song, S-O-N-G, 
And, and I say that because you ought to have a place you can run because trouble is going to come. And family members are going to die. You know, the dog's going to get hit by a car. Uh, you're not going to get the promotion. Uh, you're going to get, get PCS when you don't want to go. Uh, life will just happen. And uh, to me, you need, uh, you need something to run, a place to run to for comfort, to have a center. And uh, something that you can say to yourself uh, that, that will help to ground you. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for joining me on What Are You Reading? Thank you so much. Here, Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.